Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 780. Uh, let's talk about what's going on on the Nerdist Community Corkboard. We have a few new shows on the podcast network. The Jackie and Lori Show, hosted by Jackie Cation and Lori Kilmartin. Uh, friends of mine from the open mic days of all of us. Doing- Jackie Cation's actually the one that handed me Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, although she was quick to point out that the British version was the Philosopher's Stone. Um, so many years ago, we were doing, doing up on mics together. I owe her a huge debt for introducing me to that world. Um, they talk about their lives, current events, struggles, joys of being comedians. Also, the half-hour happy hour with Allison Hayslip and Alex Albrecht, two other good friends of mine. It's all just this is, this is how people get on the network. Hey, I, I like you. You have a thing. Let's work together. Uh, every week, Alex and Allison sit down with a drink and catch up with each other. Both shows will come out Mondays. Uh, Hayslip is one of my uh, dearest friends from the old G4 days. And Alex, we became friends because of the G4 days. So uh, there you go. Moving on to things that don't involve the Nerdist Network. Mark Iacolino writes, I'm a fan of your podcast. I've been listening for two years, mostly when working on my books. I have published six children's books, such as My Pet Penguins, Francis Dances, and more. You can find them by going to Amazon and searching Mark Iacolino. Uh, it could also be Yakolina. Uh, Yakolina, 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 Yakolina. Now go search uh, Falco. It's I A C O L I N A. Iaco? Iacolina? What if the whole intro was just me trying to figure out Mark Iacolina's uh, last name? Anyway, now you'll never forget it because I just said it probably the wrong way nine times. This episode is Jason Alexander, who I met because he's a huge Walking Dead fan, and he came on Talking Dead, and he was super cool. And I said, will you please come on the podcast? And he was like, yes! So then we did it, and he continued to be super rad and cool. He's a uh, did a couple episodes of The Grinder, which, come, which, which just happened, and also uh, I know that uh, Seinfeld just got uh, released on a digital platform. What was it? Did it all come out on Amazon? I'm a moron. I probably should have looked that up. Anyway, there was a big pop-up shop for it here in Los Angeles, and there were lines out the door for hours long. So, uh, Jason Alexander, uh, good man, comedy legend Jason Alexander, uh, and also Duckman, one of my favorite shows. So if you haven't watched Duckman, I will talk about it in the podcast, but go watch Duckman wherever you can find it. Uh, the precursor to a lot of contemporary animation comedy. Here's Nerds Podcast number 780 with Jason Alexander. Katie, roll the thing! Now entering Nerdist.com. So inappropriately dressed. You did not walk across the lot. Oh, it's freezing. It's fucking freezing. It is cold. Damn, man. It is real cold. How are you? Good, how are you? Better than most, not as good as some. It's good. Is Kyle coming? Yeah, he's fetching me a a quaff. Oh, good. I'm going to tell him to fetch me one, too. Q-U-A-F-F. Yeah, that works. We got it. Kyle... Kyle Clark. Uh, okay. I have texted him. Send! Send! Good. All right, we are done. You get reception here. Wow. Barely. I thought, you know, being on the lot would have been a nice... 
<laughs> You'd think. They've put you as far. Is it, you know, you, yeah, we are literally the far corner yeah. of. Why can't they just park outside this gate and hop you, it? We should just, we, yeah, <laughs> it we, been we, easier. we should just be on Santa Monica Boulevard just out there shivering. You just put a chair out. Yeah. Like in Boston, when yeah. you shovel the spots, you put a chair in your I spot. like it. What? We just put a chair out there. I don't know what that is. Place. You don't know that? What do they do? Oh, in Boston, when yeah. you're shoveling out your spot, and then you have to go get your car, so you leave like a folding chair. And that's in your the claim spot. to the spot. <laughs> what? And someone can't just kick this one. Can't they just can, they but can. it's Boston and it's heavily <laughs> armed. Get, yeah. <laughs> they won't. <laughs> they won't the stand for that. that. Yeah. So it breaks the code. Are you from Boston? Yes. Yeah. I went to college up there. You went to BU, right? Yeah. yeah I did yeah. too, briefly. Uh, was, well, yeah, I didn't finish either. But, uh, <laughs> Does anyone finish? Uh, Howard Stern finished. Yeah, oh, he people, did. Yeah, oh. Nice. And I have a doctorate from there, and he does not. Oh, that'll tell you everything you need. To know. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, I was just uh, I was just in Cambridge performing at MIT. Beautiful, lovely. MIT is great. Beautiful. You were right. Kyle was twenty feet away. Yes. I just like to would you? I'm Kyle, sorry, Kyle. Will you, you are please? The best of can all I please men. have a decafy thing? Sure. Oh, it is. The coffee shop is closed. The fuck this are is, they do? This is very fine. It is good. All right, like good. All right, like yeah. Whatever, Kyle. Whatever, whatever. Thank it's, you. Decaf's kind of a waste of time, isn't it? No, I know it sounds like a waste of time, but I just like a hot beverage. I know. I'm the same way. I can't drink coffee. It makes me. Uh, I gotta tell you. Well, if you drink greatest, coffee, you can do five thing shows ever. And is the now I, in September? I had to change the entire way I live my my ingesting life. But this is the one thing I did not have to give up, and it would have been the one thing I could not. What did you have to stop doing? Gluten, sugar, most fake sugars, uh, most red meat, um, all shellfish, other kinds of weird fish. Are you allergic to stuff? Nice kosher. I have, yeah, kosher. (laughs) Uh, No, it was, I I was um, getting sick. I had all kinds of internal inflammation issues. And it was just all that stuff. And they said, the guy, you know, I I had just turned 56 and they went to the doctor and he went, did you have fun? Did you enjoy those 55 years? Oh, no. That was a, that was a good time, wasn't it? You guys are that's done. <laughs> so, and he, said, he basically said, um, you know, you can take me seriously or not, but if you don't, in about two years, you're going to be a really sick guy. Oh, fuck. So, I went, so you okay. have to. All right. I'm going to give you about an hour to reflect. I'll be back in the office. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, it is. But if you so. feel a lot better, do you feel better in you, general? Absolutely. Oh, good. And, and the only time it's hard is, and I'm sure you hit it too, is you travel and you go, oh, Mr. Airplane, can I have yeah. anything that isn't yeah. wheat laden? Right. Or, you know. uh, other than that, it's okay. Or you play, I play Podunky Towns sometimes. So I don't do a real dinner before I go on, and then I'll finish my show, and it's like 10 30 at night, and you want dinner. And you get back to the hotel, Taco Bell. and you go uh, salad. Well, that's an iceberg wedge, you know, right. <laughs> which is just covered. Right. It's just it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, but it, so the, then the responsibility is like, well, then you better start. Then you got to plan your meals. Yeah, uh, I, I know people that travel with it. I'm not quite there yet. You would have you. You ultimately, if you kind of have to. So, have you fallen off the wagon at all? In terms, no, mm-hmm. not at all. Mm-mm. No, good can't, for you. Can't do it. Can't do it. Wouldn't be prudent. Um, no, it. Uh, <laughs> dropping some church lady. Yeah. <laughs> no, he was I, I, George Bush. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was yeah. That, that, that was thousand points a night. Thousand points a night wouldn't be. Pretty. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Uh, because um, carbs, for, wheat for me is like alcohol to an alcoholic. I do it, and I go, gotta have more. Gotta have you just gotta more, more, more to have more. But now that you've distanced yourself from it, are the cravings gone? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. I think the body ultimately adjusts to whatever you... Yeah, and my wife lives this way, which is great. 
Oh, that's handy when the other person. But yeah, now you can. I can walk into a you know French pastry now and go. It's all poison. That's good that she's not just scooping out (laughs) like a jug of good. Like you can't eat this, you pussy. Uh, Why? She's not that. My my kids are. But oh, your son. By the way, your son, the son that I met at Talking Dead, is his name Gabe. Gabe. Yes. So cool. Well, he's going to invite. You probably can't come, but I have at the end of this, I'll invite you to his thing. He's he and his partner have been really quickly rising up through the sketch comedy ranks in town. And they have their first show at the Comedy Central stage. That's fantastic. On Wednesday night. And he said, oh, just invite Chris. I said, I'll invite him. But I yeah. would let, the only reason I can't go is because we shoot two shows you on do two shows. Yeah, we do, we do our Thursday show Wednesday night. And so we don't get out yeah. here until like 10. But if he does another show in town, he I is a, He's a regular at I.O. West. They uh-huh. give him the stage at least once a month. Um, but I will. I'll, he should I'll do a show at Nerdist. I have a, the- I have a theater. We have a theater in Milton Commons. I will. Pay, if you give me that info, I'll Done. pass it on to him. Done. They are actually really funny. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have to. You don't have to do the parent like. No. I mean, it's a hard road, buddy. Like, no. I mean, I don't know how you get anywhere with sketch and improv, but but they are really funny. It's good they training. Funny. You know, they he did. We had seen fifteen minute shows or twenty minute shows, and then he started doing hour shows. And he said, yeah, well, we're doing all new stuff. And I went, really? Well, that's ballsy because you're an hour of new stuff. You know? He did, put up 14 sketches. Ten of them were home runs. First time up. So I went, wow. That's fantastic. Is... And he does nothing. You know, he's funny. I guess I'm funny. But we do nothing the same way. You know what that means? It means there's comedy in your jizz. I mean, I don't want to make it weird. <laughs> you have no idea how true a statement that is. <laughs> I mean, they come out with little clown noses. <laughs> I see it's little very, red dots. It's broad. You're, I'm glad you're inspecting it. <laughs> Hang on. I just need to see. All right, the clowns are still there. What are you talking about? The other person's oh, trying to man. sneak out of the building. I mean, I, I told you at, when you came, when you did Talking Dead, what an, I mean, a, uh, you've done a million things, but Duckman is one of my favorite yeah, thing, duck, things. Yeah. things. I fucking love Duckman. Oh, and I, I always hope that in the groundswell of like, let's bring things back, I always hope it comes back. You know, back. A, lot of, a lot of people ask about it. I don't know why it doesn't, because it really did fly under the radar. It was, it was pre-South Park and pre-Family Guy and pre-sort you know sort of the animated series for adults stuff. And it was on UPN, which, you know, the Paramount Network, which kind of came and went and had no money. Yeah. So it, it never really Wait, got... Wasn't it on USA? I thought it was on USA. No. Originally, it was UPN. Wow. And, uh, and I know they released... We did four seasons. I think they released one or two on DVD. I don't know how well they did, but... You know, it's it's one, yeah, it's a it's a funny show, very much ahead of its time. Yeah, certainly you, animation style. When you see, yeah, the Klasky Shupo, yeah. uh, are they still? Is Klasky Shupo still around? No, no. as far as I know, they're not. they did Rugrats mm-hmm. and they did. Uh, it was a very specific animation style. Yeah, uh, and they had that building on like Highlander. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's where we used to. Uh, oh, it's put so it so great. And Everett Peck, who created it, would come in every week, and you know, he it was great. And everybody involved with it. If you said, "Would you do it again for scale?" We go, "Yeah, we had it. We, we had a great time." It's just a great time doing it. So you were doing that. So that was so Seinfeld was. That was all during Seinfeld. That was all during Seinfeld. Yeah. yeah. Nice. What yeah. a fun side gig. Yeah. I think when people watch it, if they haven't seen it before, they'll recognize. You'll see what other things it influenced, like that comedy style, that Absolutely. really quick non sequitur. Yeah. You know the stuff, but you know it's, it's especially the relationship between you and Cornfed, like that. Yeah. 
a lot of that you see trickle down in other comedy. Maybe you don't realize. I think I think Matt and Trey were were certainly influenced by it to sure. some degree. And yeah, um, yeah, it was uh, what I marvel at when I go and look at one is how many pages got smushed into that thirty minute slot because we would do forty eight fifty page scripts. Yeah, wow. and you go, well, at a minute a page, this does not add up. But that dialogue used to fly. And it was just. Did you guys record great. together? Or no, hardly yeah, ever. We did. I think we did two episodes where I was in the room with anybody. Because <laughs> because yeah. voiceover when you can get the whole cast in is the oh, best. The best. You can fuck around, yeah, but you know totally everybody was around. working on stuff. So. So where? What is your background? Was your background sketch? In, no. What was your background? Theater. <laughs> I was a trained classical actor. Trained classical theater. And I, uh, I I wasn't even particularly interested in comedy. Um, I, when I went to college, I had done very little comedy. Um, and my, <laughs> my, I had two idols, two people that made me want to be a performer. One in the musical theater world was Ben Vereen. Mm-hmm. I thought I would be the next Ben Vereen. Why would that not happen? <laughs> Why not? And, uh, and the guy that I was just, I had my little man crush on was Bill Shatner. Because I was a Star Trek nut and I wanted to be Kirk. I didn't even want to be an actor. I wanted to captain the Enterprise. I yeah. thought that was a career goal. So I, those, those roles that Shatner's actually good in, um, you know, it's bigger than life. He's not good at playing a guy, but he's good at playing the head of Starfleet. That, he's not you know, playing a like guy, that. but that guy. <laughs> yeah, the guy. Um, and that's the stuff that I gravitated towards. And I, I went through two years of my first two years of college doing kind of that kind of stuff. And I had uh, one professor. He was this wonderful African American guy. He'd come up through street theater in the '60s, and he said, uh, called me in his office. This was our, you know, first semester assessment, and, and uh, he said, I know that your heart and soul is Hamlet and you would be a profound Hamlet but you will never play Hamlet (laughs) so you best get good at Falstaff (laughs) and I and I will Falstaff and he was telling me in no uncertain terms if you want to have a commercial career any kind of a you know a really viable career um, you got to start looking at comedy I was already losing my hair I I was always 20 pounds overweight so you know he just looked at me and went you've got a flair you got the right energy for comedy but you're not gravitating toward it so you know make your choice but you can be Paul Giamatti before there ever was a Paul Giamatti, uh, or or you can uh, be George Costanza. So uh, so that's when I started looking at comedy was in college, because I, the first time I s- did Pretty Woman predate Seinfeld. Yeah, ju- did, just barely. Yeah, they were around the same time. Yeah, in fact, Pretty Woman I think is what led them to look for me for Seinfeld. Got it, because that that's one of those things where you all the, where you haven't heard of someone yet, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, now they're just appearing in like, yeah. the biggest things yeah, all yeah, at yeah. once. Yeah, in fact, I, I won a Tony Award, then did Pretty Woman, then got Seinfeld. So it was like a big year. Oh my god! Yeah. So was the year before that not was, was I? I was you know, Chris. I, from the time I was fourteen. It's the one thing, because I talk to student actors all the time who go, what do I do when I get out of here? And I go, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I fell into a professional career at 14. Uh, you know, I, I thought at 12, I started doing a lot of theater, just community theater, children's theater. By 14, I had picked up some some professional representation. I was doing commercials. Um, and I left college early because I was working. So... Uh, all before Seinfeld, uh, I, I was making – I never had another job. From the time I left college, I never had to work at anything other than being an actor. And I was making 
you know, a high five-figure income back in 1980, 81, just from commercials. Then I'd do a Broadway gig, add that to that. So I was making a great living, and all I ever wanted to do was New York theater. I had no aspirations towards film or television. You did a McDonald's commercial. I did a McDonald's commercial. The only McDonald's, the only McDonald's product that never... Succeeded. The they McDLT? even bring the McDLT. It was. Yes. It was. That was my guess. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I was Mr. McDLT, and yeah. it was an extravagant commercial. You keep the cool commercial. side cool and the hot and side the hot. Hot side hot, unless you put it into the bag uh, <laughs> on a vertical, and then it, it just becomes a clusterfuck. Um, but it was. Yeah, I had a two-year deal with McDonald's. They made one commercial. The, t- the product tanked, and they went, "Thank you." <laughs> DLT was buried in the back yeah. of my brain somewhere, just yeah. waiting to be picked. Oh man, what a terrible idea! What a terrible product! <laughs> and I'm I mean, so I'm so proud to have represented it to America. <laughs> but you know what's so interesting is just for anyone for any career path, particularly entertainment, is to hear. Yeah, I started working regularly in '80 and '81. But it wasn't until 10 years later right. that everything... That Although I had a career that, you know, 95% of actors would go, oh, I'd kill for that. I mean, sure. I was working on Broadway. I'm working with great people. Uh, I'm, you know, putting money in the bank every year. And then this thing... I always had this fantasy when I was a little kid. Um, you know, how you stand in the bathroom going, "Thank I want to thank the Academy. It was right. the Oscars. Mine was the Tony. I just wanted to somehow live long enough to win a Tony Award. Won it at 29. And I remember going home that night going, well, now what do I dream about? You know, this is kind of weird. And within three months of that, Pretty Woman fell from out of the sky. And uh, and it was the Gary Marshall to Rob Reiner connection. Rob Reiner's company did Seinfeld. And I think that's how my name got put in the hopper to be seen for Seinfeld was because Gary said, I, I work with this kid. He was good. Uh, he's not. Uh, yeah, you should look at him. Not a Jew, by the way. Gary no, Marshall, not, not a Jew. Isn't that's it crazy? the strangest isn't thing in the world. Crazy? By yeah. the way, that was teenage Gary Marshall. Yeah. That's how he's just always, that's right. he's always been that guy. Absolutely. My Bench, sister Penny. The ball, you'll give it me to me. <laughs> well, your character in Pretty Woman wasn't a particularly, it wasn't, re- he, was, he was just kind of the, he wasn't really a comedy character. No, he was a villain, but... It, but um, so the crazy secret about Pretty Woman that I, I think... Somebody else must talk about this, but um, Pretty Woman, the script, was a really much darker movie than what we all saw. Uh, it was called 3000, and it... Uh, that's it, how much he pays her. Yeah, that's how much he pays her. And the depiction of life as a prostitute is a lot more real. She's a bit of a drug addict in the script. They don't end up together at the end. It was, you know, it was a, a different thing. That's the script that I got hired for. When I got to the shoot on the first day, they'd been shooting for a couple of weeks, and Gear came up to me and said, get ready. <laughs> so what? He goes, I don't know what movie we're making, but it's not the one on the page. And Gary had a different idea in his head. He just he saw this other sort of fantastical romantic comedy, and he didn't tell anybody. Because he didn't tell the producers, he didn't tell anybody. And he would bring us out on the set getting ready to shoot what we thought was, you know, my first scene I think was some business machination between Gear and myself. And we got out there and he said, yeah, let's hear the, the words, say the words. And we start running the dialogue and he goes, wait, when, when you come in, notice Richard's shoes. Say something about his shoes because Richard had on a very fancy pair of shoes at the um, and I, I said, okay. And we had lived like six lines about Richard shoes. And he goes, Let's shoot it. And we, and then we shot the shoe thing. And we never shot the scene. So even the big scene where I attacked Julia, we did it 
20 different ways. We did it where she beats the crap out of me. We did it where it isn't quite as serious as, you know, and he kind of just picked and chose the colors he wanted. And they replaced drugs with dental floss. Yeah, dental floss. It, because it, he, cause he ultimately sounded like he, wow, that is so strange. So he took a dark indie and essentially made it a fairy tale. Yeah. And, you know, we left, we wrapped shooting. Everybody had a great time, because you always do on a Gary Marshall set. But we went, he's got nothing. There's no movie here. There's nothing. We never thought it would see the light of day. And then we heard, oh, they're renaming it Pretty Woman because we got the song. And I went, well, that's it. That's the death knell right there. Uh, and then we got invited to the cast and crew screening. And we all sat there with our jaws slack going, how the hell did he do this? He was using things where we didn't know the camera was rolling or outtakes or oh wow, all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, you know, the scene, there's a, that famous moment where... They're going to the opera, and Richard's offering her the pearl necklace, right. and he snaps it shut on her hand. Yeah. Well, they, she didn't know the camera was rolling. If you if you watch, she she laughs and looks right into the camera because <laughs> she's like, "Oh, look what Richard did!" You know. And <laughs> so it's filled with stuff like that, and it was just he he was just brilliant about cobbling together. Oh my god! And did did at the time. I guess you just you just never know. It just shows that you just never know. You, no, you honestly because that really was the biggest movie of that year. It was huge. I mean, at the time it was historic. I think for it was a touchstone in Disney film. It was gigantic, and it sent her into this to this. Uh, well, we, that we did know when we were on the set. We said if this thing sees the light <laughs> of day, she's huge. Yeah, because uh, she was so charismatic. She'd smile at you and you'd go, "I'll kill people for you." <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, I'll yeah, do whatever yeah. you want. You're pretty. <laughs> You're a pretty woman. <laughs> but then the same thing with Seinfeld, because Seinfeld is is lore in the entertainment business for the state of the way things are now, where things get two episodes and everyone always goes, right. "Well, if they, you know, using these metrics and this method, they never would have given Seinfeld a chance right. because the first season was not what the show ended up becoming." Is that true? Uh, well, actually, the first season is very much what the show became, but it wasn't making anybody happy. I, I, you know, we we did the pilot, and I remember um, Jer- at the end of shooting the pilot, Jerry said to me, so, what do you think? What do you think? I said, mm, no. <laughs> he said, you don't think it's good? I said, no, I think it's good. That's the problem. I said, the, the, the audience for this thing is me, you know, guys who live in a city, probably white, 18 to maybe 32 years old. That's that's the audience. But they're not watching TV. The number one comedy in America when we started was Alf. <laughs> okay? So... <laughs> Um, so I said, no one's going to watch this, you know, and initially I was, I was right. So NBC tested the pilot. It's the worst test results up, up to that point of any half hour they had ever made. And they said, no, we're not, we're not picking this up. It was dumped, dead. You're released. Go, Go and be happy. Take another show if you want. And in those days, because there was only three networks on HBO and a very new HBO, uh, they would fill empty slots by just throwing on dead pilots. So they threw on the dead pilot of Seinfeld and somebody, I think the TV Guide critic wrote, wow, that was interesting and new and kind of fun. And they went, um, was it? <laughs> that's, that's not what our test. But NBC liked Jerry and they knew it was funny. They just didn't think it worked. And somehow they called us all up and said, would you guys do a few more if we gave you the chance just to see? And we, we all said, sure. Added Julia. Um, did uh, a whopping episode, a, a four-order episode. <laughs> um, 
did those. They tested like crap, too. And they <laughs> threw them on. And it was weird it, that nobody was watching except this very small demographic that I described. Guys 18 to 32 years old. Well, you know, um, ad guys love that audience. That's the one they're trying to get. So we could always sell the time, even though very few the numbers were small. So if the network had just gone by the rating numbers, they would have tossed it. Instead, they just kept moving it around the schedule, seeing if they could find any more of an audience for it. And eventually, they parked us after Cheers. And that's when we exploded. But that was deep into the third season. Which is actually great, because it usually takes a show like two or three seasons to really lock in. But you can see, even in the pilot, you can see the Seinfeld show. Uh, You see it coming. We're all figuring it out. But it's there. The style is there. The, The... you know, the technique of, of doing these tangential comedy runs that are off story, very small story. It, it, all The characters are all basically there. It's interesting that you always <clears> – it's right at the turn of a decade is usually the time when Something people happens. seem yeah. to be ready for – it's like you said, Alf. Well, that was the end of the 80s right. kind of or the beginning of the 90s. Like, Absolutely. you know, Seinfeld ushered in this whole new – type of comedy but it was also i think it was also the 90s is really when hbo and showtime started to come into their real stride because up until then they were just taking whatever movies had tanked at the box office or they get one or two good ones and they had very little original programming dream on dream on was starting to break up you yeah. know um but they started to get aggressive and all of a sudden the more sophisticated audience was traveling over to cable yeah and that's when you know the network guys went hmm we we have to smarten this up a little bit because the the as you know the trick in broadcast is greatest common denominator, biggest crowd there is greatest common denominator. Don't offend, don't challenge, don't you know. So to do that, you have to you have to set the artistic bar a little low. You're being way too careful, and that produces things like Alf, I th- <laughs> <laughs> which is fine in its own right. I mean, you know, if, Listen, I, no if I had a Alf. young family, no one on Alf is taking offense to this. Yeah, no, you know, but you know what though? It's an interesting. Well, first of all, Spike Ferriston has been on before, mm-hmm. and he talked about. I mean, the writing process sounds so obvious. Like, why don't more people do this? But he said, yeah, you would go in and you would just pitch things that happened to you to Larry. And then that's where the sh- and and that's why the show was so unique is because they weren't no one you guys weren't writing for lowest common denominator you were writing you're writing the complete opposite the most specific right least common denominator and it had no agenda there was no I mean we had one season arc where you know it was Jerry and George pitching the Jerry Show to NBC <laughs> but other than that you know when the 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 thing they never had to answer is what happens in season four. Right. We renegotiate for more money because it's season four. That's the answer. I, you know, it's it's just funny. And, you know, I'm sure Spike told you the big sign over the writer's door. It said, no hugging, no learning. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not the characters don't grow. They don't, you know, they just are who they are. And you go for the funniest spot you can find. I mean, that really did. That was one of the things that kind of encapsulated the. You know, it's it's so funny because when you look at 70s sitcoms and 90s sitcoms, there's very much a cyclical – because in the, the 60s and the 80s are very similar with like the aw-hug moment sure. type of sitcom. And then the 70s, you had Norman Lear. Mm-hmm. And then in the 80s – and then the 90s, I mean with the exception of James L. Brooks, most sitcoms were like Alf. Absolutely. Um, and the 90s was very much, you know, about irony and – 
you know, like taking jabs and all, and a lot of the protagonists started becoming despicable characters as opposed to lovable characters. I mean, well, that's the thing. Larry and Jerry talk about how, you know, in the pitch meeting for Seinfeld, they got the inevitable question, why do we like these people? <laughs> and Larry was like, you don't! <laughs> Who gives a shit what you like? You, you, you know, and, and it harkens all the way back to All in the Family. Why would why – would, you can't redeem Archie Bunker, but there was something about him that we understood and forgave and, and embraced. There's nothing likable about Archie really on the surface. You have to dig down and hit some tender moments. But, yeah. you know, and yet they still ask these questions. Why do we care? Why do we like them? Well, in a comedy, you like them because they make you laugh. That's the only reason you need to like them. Right. If you relate to them, great. But if they're making you laugh, there's a lot of people, comics, that I love because they make me laugh. I don't relate to at all. So, (laughs) you know, it's just a crazy question. I honestly don't think – I think Seinfeld would have had a difficult time in today's social media climate with a lot of the stuff that you guys made fun of and tackled. And, you know, there'd be a lot – I'm sure there would be – Outrage! Seinfeld makes fun of blah 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 well, blah. Look, blah. We, we stepped in poo on the Puerto Rican Day parade. You know, <laughs> oh was, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was. Yeah, we wouldn't be able to do. It. And actually, I don't even know if you could do the stories we were. Do. Cell phones would have tanked Seinfeld. We yeah. always needed to be together <laughs> to, to deliver our information. <laughs> I think it's very. Uh, <laughs> I always thought it was very fitting that at the la- in the last episode of Seinfeld, Elaine has the cell phone and they're talking about the walk and talk. I always thought it was a very right. fitting way to end the series. Was like, well, everyone, cell phones are around. We can't do the show anymore. Yeah, no, it's really it would have killed us. Yeah. So, what was the experience like for you in terms of were you bringing in story ideas or were you just like, yeah, I'll just you know. No. Uh, they made it pretty clear that they, in a very kind way, um, they, they weren't looking to me and Julia and Michael for stories. Um, if we happened to, in the course of rehearsing or hanging out, told an interesting story, it could wind up as something. But we wouldn't go in and go, okay, this thing happened to me. Let me just pitch it to you. No, never. Uh, the input they did enjoy from us is that the rehearsal week was pretty loosey-goosey. So if we thought of stuff on the set, uh, a line, a bit of business, a story idea, that we could try. Um, but by tape night, it was all locked in. People very flatteringly go, oh, you guys were ad-libbing all over the place. We go, no. If we said and and it was but, we'd do another take. So um, – but it, it was it, it felt inclusive and and um, loose getting there, but never as far as being invited to the writers' room to pitch it. I mean, literally, the the four of you all had long careers before that show came around. I, mean, I remember watching Michael Richards on Fridays, Fridays that weird yeah. Saturday Night Live yeah, knockoff, or someone. It's bastard stepbrother, or something. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, there was some weird, which I I remember enjoying because the show was so surreal i remember the show being really right. surreal and then julia had been amazing on snl and jerry had been around and you went around doing theater so it's you know were you ready for the were you, when it finally with all the stops and starts when it finally popped were you emotionally ready for it or did it just feel like ah you know it's we'll just kind of ride this well out you for know a while. that's the really cool thing about the way seinfeld hit is that even if i were the kind of person who would have had a um I guess a bad reaction to success. Um, I had had enough of it for long enough in my own little way that it wasn't going to get to me. And then the success of Seinfeld, if we had been friends, because Friends debuted its first night and it was a giant hit and that's where it stayed. That was not us. So we 
we went into our final season going, I guess people are really watching this thing. Uh, I mean, it was always surreal. Jerry once described us, I loved his description. He said, we're the world's biggest garage band. We're just in the garage making noise. We can't believe the, the neighbors are going, you know, these guys aren't bad. <laughs> you yeah. know? So that's what it felt like. It felt like our little stupid project. And gradually but surely, it started to hit with people. Um, to the point where I'm still amazed. Like if I travel internationally to places where I go, I'm a face in the crowd. Nobody knows who I am here. And then they go, George, George, you know, in the Middle East. Or the, and I go, wow. Yeah. Who the fuck that would penetrate to here? So um, it was a nice, even, steady, slow build. And I don't think anybody uh, had a significant ego change. <laughs> we were all heinous people really? when we started. And we were heinous people when we I mean, it was... You could not have, you could not have been on a show at a better time than in the '90s. Just for that whole people, lots of people were still watching network television. Yeah, yeah. It was salaries were still. You still had great syndication oh deals. My like God, oh, now like unless you're Big Bang Theory, right? No, it's like it's, no, it's it, it is that that is a that is talking about the old day, like the right. golden days. Ah, there was a time. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, there are times when uh, people say to me, "Well, you know." What about Friends did better than you guys? And what about Big Bang's better than Friends? You know, doing better than Friends. And I, and I go, yeah, but, you know, let's put it in, into perspective. I made more money playing George in nine years than Alan Alda made playing Hawkeye for 12 years. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, you're always standing on the shoulders of the guy that came in front of you. Right. Uh, you can't really get and crazy Kelsey Grammer it. stands above us all. Yeah. Right? <laughs> 20 years being crazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. That's still mind-blowing, too. It's like, I'm going to just be this kind of walk-on character, and then that's... The, it's like, you just never know. You never know what the, what the entertainment business is puzzling, no. but you should never close... Yeah. And in fact... Seinfeld had two potential spinoffs that I thought they should have done, and they didn't do either one. The number one that I thought through the roof would have been the four parents down at the condo in Florida. Oh, absolutely. That would oh, have God. been unbelievable. And they never, they never even... I don't think they ever looked at it. And the other one that I thought would really have been timely was the Johnny Cochran character. Oh, yeah. That Phil Morris. <laughs> Phil Morris. <laughs> if they had made a legal comedy with him as the centerpiece, I went, that would be absolute gold. <laughs> Did they ever talk about spinoffs in the show? No. I heard something once about a George spinoff. It never got... They never said to me, hey, if we did, what would you... Uh, they may have said something to Michael about doing a Kramer thing, but you know, I, I don't know what Michael's response was. I, I would have thought, there's no George without Jerry and Elena. Right. I mean, you got the parents, but... It's it's really he only exists in juxtaposition to these other three guys. So I, I I don't think it would have worked. When it ended, were you emotionally ready for that to be the end? Or you like, yeah, yeah, you were. Yeah, we. This is a you know a nice testament to Jerry. At, at around the Christmas break every year, starting around season six, we'd get together and go, "How are we feeling? Everybody feeling good about this? You know, feels like we're going strong." And and we'd always say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, no, it's going good." The season we stopped, we got to, we kind of came into that season going, I got a feeling this may be it. But we got to the Christmas break and we had the meeting and we all kind of came in going, I think this is it. And f for a variety of reasons, but, the, but the, the really responsible one was we felt like we couldn't surprise the audience anymore. That you kind of knew what these characters would do given almost any impetus or circumstance. That is a pretty good indicator you're done if you can if you can't get to the unexpected anymore 
You can do funny, but if you can't do unexpected, I think that's you've probably done enough. Yeah. Was there any part in terms of afterwards? Did you have to fight any? They're like, I'm not George Costanza. I'm an actor, and I can play a lot of different. Oh, I've, 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 professionally, I still fight it. I had so the two biggest things that I was a part of post Seinfeld were two series of my own. One of them lasted very, very briefly, and the other one lasted one season. And neither one was, you know, an out of the box. Never, neither one got a huge first look, and then the audience went away. So they were growing when they were canceled, but it was never a huge audience to begin with. So you've had now uh, how long are we done? Fifteen years of of George out there three, four times a day. And not nearly as many images of me doing something else. Mm-hmm. So even the industry at this point goes, yeah, he probably wasn't acting. That's probably that's who he is. I'm sure that's, that's the guy. And uh, it, most producers – it's not an audience problem. It's a producer problem. Most producers, for some reason, do not want to face the moment that will happen. If you put me in the Birdman, in the Zach Galifianakis role – when I come on for about three seconds, the audience is going to go, hey, it's George. <laughs> Fuck. Now, if I do my job and they do their job, three seconds later, they're watching this character. Right. Producers don't want that three seconds. And they don't think, for whatever reason, that when Tom Hanks walks on the screen in Bridge of Spies, we don't go, hey, Forrest Gump. <laughs> uh, you know. It's Tom Hanks. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all bring our associations, but... I think they feel like the audience has been glutted on this image of me and they can't get it out of their head and, and it's they don't want to take the time to blow the cobwebs away. But you can do – but you do – I mean you, you, you could you do theater and you tour and you do – I – you know, knock wood. That's me knocking. Come in. Um, I, I've never stopped working. Uh, but, peop, but it's on uh, – it's for audiences that are nowhere near as big. So I do guest stuff on TV. Uh, I have I, I actually – because of this, I wound up doing two one-man shows that I tour all over the place. Uh, one's a stand-up comedy show, which I never was until about seven years ago. The other one is a symphony show that I take with symphonies all over the place. So that's great. People see that stuff. And um, I do a lot of stuff behind the scenes. I do some more directing, some producing, some writing, some teaching. Life is happy. Life is good. Amazingly, it's still a very lucrative career, um, uh, even without Seinfeld. But... I have not found that thing that makes me go, yeah, let me just sign another six or seven year contract. I haven't found that mm. that thing. But you're not even playing Tony Kornheiser, would you? Have- well, that was the last <laughs> one. But, you know, it's so funny. The one I did before that, Bob Patterson, was one that I co-created with my friend Peter Tilden. Now, Patterson didn't last very long, and it was universally reviled by critics. But I will go to my grave saying, that was a funny show, and that show had real possibilities. Yeah. I never thought "Listen Up" was <laughs> was going to be solid, but you know, when I met with Les Moonves, he said, "You know, I love you for this. I love this show. We waited a year to cast it. You're available now. I want you. I'll give you at least two years." And then, of course, he canceled it this season. <laughs> but I never. Th- I, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was Alf. I, I thought it was a fine, nice, sweet family show. I thought um, Malcolm Jamal Warner and I could have done something more than we were given. And there was a young actress named uh, Daniela Monet who played my daughter, and I thought she was, you know, there was something there that we could have played. But that show never, 
Never took off. Cut the the game out. Jason Alexander reboots Alf. <laughs> like, yeah. Bring it on, baby. <laughs> There's a little Alf doll right in the corner right there. Like you could already start oh, yeah, practicing. Son of a... start oh, man, that is freaky. You summoned him. Wow. You've summoned him. Holy crap. It's actually out. It's not just like a generic Alf. That's no. Alf. No problem, Jason. How did that? What? What is the fascination with that? I don't know, Alf. You know, I was the I was in high school when Alf was on, so I was the dem. I was. It's funny. My I, I watched every comedy, everything when I yeah. was growing. I was a voracious comedy consumer. Every stand up, everything, every sitcom, every, you know, whether it was HBO or family sitcoms and animation and every, and you know, Alf was just one of those because it's such a to me, it's such a bizarre. I think the show wanted in the first episode to be edgier. Mm-hmm. They they tried, yeah, and then in the end it was just like, well, yeah, you know, because they you know they tried to make him Stewie basically. They tried to make him this sort of sure. Uh, I mean, they didn't know that's what they were doing, but that was he was that archetype. Uh, and then as it sort of went on, I think it was just it just became like, oh, well, I'm sure there was also that moment where I, I remember auditioning for the voice of Howard the Duck <laughs> in the movie Howard the Duck, which eventually went to my friendship Zion, and I thought, oh, what a cool idea. The script's kind of funny. How'd they do the duck? Thinking, oh, technology. It's a guy in a duck suit. Yeah. And I, you, no, come on, seriously. How did they do it? Like, Is no, that why you went to do Duckman? Because you really. I needed to. I needed. To, I had to have a duck. I needed to have one duck on the resume. Yeah. You need to have one filthy, <laughs> trash talking duck exactly. in your resume. It's almost Howard the Duck. Damn close. Ended up being yeah. Duckman. Yeah, but it, it, you know, it, I think it was just that kind of. I was the right age for all of that stuff, wow. but I also. I also watched edgy stuff too. Like I didn't really have any specific. I just watched everything. Yeah, Monty Python, British comedy, oh, all British comedy, uh, like yeah, all of sure. it. But it's but it's very hard to do. You know, edgy comedy is hard because it's that's why it's edgy. Like, also on television, it was nigh impossible because edgy was going to turn some people off, and no sponsor wanted. Alien to turn off their, Eight, yeah, Alien, yeah, safe, Ow. yeah, Alien. Eight. And if he says something, you know, untoward, you go. He doesn't know any better. He's just a puppet. He's not from here. He's not, he's not from here. I, I like that the He's from Melman. I like that the network would use the fact... He yeah. doesn't know he our doesn't customs. Know. It's not his. He didn't mean it. He's not human. You know, you're marginalizing him by putting your... That's right. Yeah. <laughs> marginalizing was not a word we used in the no, 80s. No, like, not at all. That, that, that's, not that's at all. That's a recent addition to the vernacular, but at the time... <laughs> I wish NBC would have just taken the hard line that he just didn't know our culture. Yeah. That's not that he wasn't. Yeah. You know, Paul Feig wrote an episode of ALF that we keep talking about doing a live, live reading. reading of. Do you remember what it was about? No, but I... It was something really dark, wasn't it? was dark, like, wasn't so it? dark. Like, I feel like there was suicide involved somewhere. There was something oh, so dark yeah. about it. That yeah. sounds like a Larry Charles episode. Of right? Yeah. I mean, it almost... I, and Alf, every so often, threatens to come back, and then it doesn't quite come back. Honestly, God, in, in post-Teddy, yeah. don't you think an Alf movie would kill? Well, I think so, but then I kind of go, well, who would go see it? Because it, who, would, who wouldn't go see it? I don't know, because it, it could just be one of those pop culture things that's just like... Could be Gem in the Holograms. It could be Gem in the Holograms. Like, they would probably do it like Garfield, you know? Like, I don't know if they would do it... I don't know if they would do it Didn't the way that Didn't they do a TV sh- movie not long ago that George Lopez was in? Oh, did oh, they? Alf? Really? Yeah, for ABC. What Look they up, should Katie. do... Mm. What they should do is just some weird indie... Like, why doesn't someone just... You know, if IP is just sitting there not hurting anyone, not right. bothering anyone, why not just do something super weird... Do some bizarre, like, Pulp Fiction-esque indie film with Alf 
Make it super fucked up. And do, a, do, a, not... do, a, do a John Travolta with him. But exactly. Yeah, sure. John Travolta, Alf. <laughs> Why not? I mean, like, what He's are they... He's the have? third Vega brother. <laughs> <laughs> then... Pro- Project Alf was 96. Yeah. Oh, wow. so that's not nearly as recent as I remember. But it would have to be a totally different... I don't think they should try to do it on... Although, there was a really great Alf cartoon on NBC... There was a really great Alf cartoon that was the first time. Oh boy! No, listen to me. It was the first time I'd ever seen self-referent, like outside of Warner Brothers, like old, like Chuck Jones, Warner Brothers, Bob Clampett, Warner Brothers. It was the first time that I had seen like a self-referential cartoon. Uh-huh. In the '80s, they were essentially making fun of pop culture in this Alf cartoon. It was surprise, like all the types of writing that you like. Uh-huh. These, this is what these guys did. I'm, oh, I'm wow. not, I'm not joking. I'm not. Kidding. I, I, listen, I believe you. You're an honest man. I'll tell you right now. You get Simon Pegg to voice the new Alf. Oh! You make a new, uh, an anime, a Teddy version of Alf, or Ted, Ted. You kill. I would, but I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. I don't know if I can you just can do anything. Do I don't think they're going to sit hard on the Alf property. You know how. If you come up with Simon Pegg in a script, they may go. Hey, let's give it a shot. <laughs> you know, though, you you know how you know how IP is in, in corporations. Like, can I use that? No, but you're not using it. Fuck you. You know, right. it's no. just in a vault. You Absolutely. don't know where it is. No, you don't know where it is. You know, like they. I was a, I no, was a right. Condé Nast last week. I had a meeting over there in in New York, and they were showing me the executive conference room and. I was talking to somebody from Wired, and I was like, "Do you guys ever do meetings in that room? Because it's like this beautiful room on the thirty-fifth floor of the World Trade Center." And they're like, "Yeah, I mean, we book stuff in there sometimes, but it's a thousand dollars to use it." I'm like, "What do you mean? Who gets paid thousand dollars?" Condé Nast. I'm like, "But Condé Nast owns Wired." And they're like, "Yep, it's just how it works. We just spit the money well, back into Condé Nast." You're describing the film business too. It's so fucking well, yeah. weird. The like the business. money just is routed back into yeah. guys. The shell game. I just wanted to talk about it. When we when uh, when we were working on House of a Thousand Corpses with Rob Zombie and he the studio had a meeting with him to tell him that there was no more money and he was like but they catered it like a thousand dollars and then charged oh, sure. the production and then I'm sure there was a charge for the room that they had the meeting like oh yeah it's, it's a lot of like refunnels Stud- studios are gonna make money <laughs> there's no such thing as a project that well no that's not true but I mean. Uh, I've had back end on most of the stuff in my career. I've never seen other than Seinfeld. I've never seen a penny. Yeah, ever. because that's it's, it's it's the same thing as like Back to the Future still in the red. I don't know. Absolutely. We, really? Yeah. I, I think Hanks once said that. I think Forrest Gump was made for like forty million something, and he had back end points. And domestic box office the year it came out was you know double double that. And so years later, the story goes, he you know he just went, hey, uh, back end, you know it's made. A billion something dollars. <laughs> he went. Yeah, no, it's still, uh, still yeah. in the red. Still in the red. We're almost there. Almost. Yeah. There. <laughs> this call the, cost a million dollars because of the fucking real estate they pay for Bubba well, Gump Shrimpco. Yeah. <laughs> somebody actually. We need the Santa Monica Pier. Somebody once said to me, you know, studios are corporations. They got to make the losers pay for the winners, or the winners pay for the losers. So right. all they're looking at is the stock price. There are no. Yeah. You can't get. A, you know. Titanic? No, come on. Never made it done. What? No, no. Did, you guys, did NBC ever send you guys like uh, the old uh, Porsche Boxer like they gave? Uh, no, let me tell you something. Will Grace. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not normally Kelsey a bitter man. Um, over. <laughs> NBC gave us a breakfast. Um, 
in a boxster? No, we we hit our hundredth episode, uh-huh. right? And we got. Um, which is actually kind of fun. They gave us a. Remember, I said the worst test results yeah. ever in the history of television sure. yeah, for yeah, the pilot. Yeah. Yeah. They gave us a plaque with it framed. The test. That's results. pretty great. That's pretty that's funny. And you go, cute. okay, yeah. that's nice. And then three years later, Will and Grace hit a hundred, and they get a Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> we got, I mean, uh, everything changed overnight. Where, where was the ass kissing for the Seinfeld uh, group? Now you sound like George with the Ted Danza spot and the yeah. plane. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, no, NBC, uh, uh, no, I, I will tell, oh my God. You want to hear the worst thing I ever Yes. Yes. So I think it's well known. We had a rather contentious renegotiation for mm-hmm. our, our last uh, season or two. But one of the things, um, uh, Julia, Michael, and I were not allowed to participate in syndication as, as owners, uh, which has since become more, more or less a, a successful cast can. Uh, but we were locked out, and we thought, well, this thing is going to make so much money, and we're not going to ever see that payday. So we we f- did all this research, and we found out that NBC was making $14 million of profit per episode. So we said, well, I guess we can go hog wild. Let's ask for a million dollars each an episode. I mean, they got it. You know, I'd rather not take it out of production. I'd rather take it out of profit, but they're not going to let us. So, so we did, and we, we made that ask. And um, NBC was, as you can imagine, Reluctant. Um, So it it went very, very slowly. Very, very slowly. And it started to get to critical mass where they had to announce the new season. We didn't have a deal. You know, and they had to announce their schedule. So all of a sudden things were happening quickly. And I won't name names, but they asked us all to get on a phone because we were going to hear an offer that was going to blow our minds. (laughs) And we got on the phone, and again, I will not name names, but it was, you know, it was NBC some, some brass. And they said, here's our offer. So we had asked for a million an episode. They were now up to 175000 right. We were still pretty far apart. Yeah. And uh, they said, here's our offer. We're going to give you each 250000 an episode, and we're going to give you 100,000 shares of GE stock. But... <laughs> You can't exercise that stock for 10 years. <laughs> Whoa. And the phone is, everybody's silent. So me, smartass, I go, okay, I, don't, I can't speak for everybody else. I accept that deal on one condition. We give you the first 13 episodes now, and 10 <laughs> years from now, we give you the back nine. <laughs> and uh, that was the end of that. No, I think, uh, and, and again, you know, as we as we talk, did anyone Hang laugh? On a second, I there wanna... was no laughter. No laughing. And in fact, I, you know, I was told uh, you really. Uh, they are not your friends. I said, I'm sorry, were they my friends at the start of you the You really hurt your friendship. My friends were, yeah, no you know. Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. Thanksgiving's ruined. Yeah. I want to so. know what that was worth, 100,000 shares of 1997 stock? It w- no, let's see. We, uh, what, what year was it? So we started, yeah, right, 97, yeah. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Find out how much GE stock was in 97. And how now, and now. It's probably, I probably made a bad deal. Yeah. But what, what, but what was split. it in 2007? What, 2007? 2007. Look up GE stock, but you have to now look at the market cap and see what how many shares were out there. Because if it's yeah. split, it's split. First you of all, you don't have you to, have that yet? First of all, you God have damn it, Katie. To, you have to take a course. <laughs> Who was in the Alf Come movie? <laughs> we're going to send you to Barnes and Noble. You're going to go to the finance section. We have a list of nine books for you to read. <laughs> then there'll be a written portion. But you know, in retrospect, you go, that really was an incredible offer. I mean, they were thinking kind of, out of the box. Kind of, yeah. You know, and they didn't want to make the price of television. And I also, I also want to, because so whenever, 
That's Whenever funny. there's a renegotiation a and it goes public and then people go, oh, fucking whiny actors not getting. You know what you always say is like, it's the only time people tend to side with a corporation. It's like that money's well, not going you, to an orphanage. I'll tell you an interesting thing. Hang on. Give me that. I'm going to take your computer. You guys talk for a second. I'll Here's what was so interesting. So, you know, um, somebody had put it in the paper what, what the, the negotiation was. And I thought, oh, my God, this is going to reflect so badly on us because no one understands what the realities are here, you know. And I was online uh, for a movie in New York, and this uh, Hispanic woman, I guess, in her late 20s comes up to me, and she's got a little scowl on her or what I thought was a scowl, and she goes, you're in that Seinfeld show, right? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. She goes, you're asking for like a million dollars an episode, man? I said, yeah, yeah. She went, you go get them, baby. You oh, go get them. That's so nice. I, oh, my God. That's so nice. Well, I think, I think, you know, I think people understand. It's like, you know, if you're the cast, it's basically a profit share. If you're the cast. Well, here's the thing. I went on Charlie Rose. And I, it was weird because we were in this negotiation and Charlie Rose, Charlie Rose asked me to be on the show. Did he blink? I've never seen him blink. He's never blinked. Okay. Um, and I go on and, and, you know, he hit me with the question. He goes, do you re- really think you are worth a million dollars a week? And and I answered him honestly. I said, absolutely not. I don't think any actor's worth a million dollars a week. I don't think I'm worth what they're paying me now. Yeah. If you look at it in the real world, I mean, a teacher should make more than me, a cop, a fireman, a soldier. I mean, there's tons of people who have real value in their work every week that actually change people's lives. I said, but Charlie, I don't live in the real world. I live in this world. This show's going to make a billion dollars of profit. It's not coming out of your pocket. It's not coming out of my pocket. Somebody put it there. Someone's going to get it. Who should get it? What part of that billion dollars was due to me and Michael and Julia? Any part? 10%, 5%, 1%, any part yeah, of it? Yeah, yeah. Because I said, here's what they've offered us. Zero. So we're just asking for something. something. And, and he turned his head around. And he went, wow. He went, wow we're going wow. to take a break while someone puts bourbon into my eyes. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was, uh, it was a crazy time. I, it was really a little uncomfortable because it, there was, I, I think there was some attempt to make the three of us look. I like mean, during the, the negotiation, that we actually are. <laughs> during the negotiation, during any negotiation, you have to be emotionally okay with the company coming back and going, "Okay, you're no longer doing this," and you you yeah. have to. So during that, how long did the process last? We've uh, well, we. Began, I think we began the renegotiation. Jerry came back after the Christmas break and said, okay, uh, we said we would do more. Uh, I made my deal with the network, and I told them, you know, but there's no show unless my people are happy. Oh, good. And then we started to negotiate, and, you know, we weren't terribly happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so we started negotiating in January, but there was really no movement of any kind until we finished the season, which was early April, and then May 10. They had to announce at the upfronts what their new season was going to be. And on May 8th, we didn't have a deal. Holy shit. So it was, it was you know, six weeks of, I'm sure for everybody involved. And by the way, I, you know, I, I don't vilify anybody. I think it all happened probably the way it had to happen. But, um, but it, was, it was really stressful and tense. And, and we left shooting our season. Nobody knew if we were coming back. I mean, we, we, we didn't know what to say to the crew. You know, they were all going, do we have a job next year? And we go, I, I don't know. Uh, it was, and I, the one thing I would say, I would like to think if I had a network or a studio that I would try and do business another way. 
um, I know on the few occasions where I've been able to be in a negotiation where we really were able to talk to each other, they always went fine. And, and, and you know, more often than not, I decreased my goal, but I understood what the other guy was doing and why sure. he was asking for what he was asking for. So um, – it was it was a it was a very not fun six. Oh, weeks. really? <clears throat> when when you throw when you throw the uh, entertainment lawyers into the mix, the business affairs people, it all oh, changes. Yeah, like yeah. You're, all the creative execs. Well, my manager always makes this joke. He's like, all the creative execs will call and tell you how your client is irreplaceable, and then business affairs makes the next call and tell you how replaceable your client is. Right. <laughs> like exactly. always, okay, I have, a, I have a question. What did I lose? When you're when you're when you <laughs> were negotiating, was it before May of two thousand of nineteen ninety seven? It must have been. I he guess, said started in January. Yeah, it was before yeah. May. Yeah. Okay. So the stock offer was probably in April somewhere. Okay, great. Hang on one second. Oh, Jesus. You, You're going to break my heart now, you aren't you? Have, you? You could have had... <laughs> Hang on. You, I think you might have done okay. You might have, oh, yeah. you might have done the right thing. All right. But uh, let's see. Hang on one second. Uh, oh. <laughs> Hang on. Uh, times two. Now in the year 2000, it's split three to one. Uh, times three. <laughs> Okay, uh, so you... Ooh. Yeah, hit me. Yeah. <laughs> Give it to me. $7. 37 in 2007. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually... You did fine. You did fine. Because that, that would have been worth $22,200,000. Well, that's what we basically got. You did fine. Got. You did yeah. fine. So it was, a, it was a wash. Oh, God. Wash. I got real worried for you. And <laughs> I had it sooner. <laughs> In time for the big crash of 9-11. <laughs> you would have lost... Yeah, between, uh, between 2000 and... 2007 and now, you would have... That would have dropped down to about twenty million. Oh, I wouldn't have kept it. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Oh, good. You would have immediately been like, "I'm out." I would have been hawking it on the street with cigarettes. <laughs> were you good? Were you were you good with uh, like? Were you good with money in terms of? No, 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 uh, no. We, we're fine, but it's not because of me. Um, no, I mean, are, were you good in terms of like when you get it, or do you like? Do you know what to do? No. <laughs> That's why there are people absolutely not are in your life. No, I, the one thing I am good about is I, I I have always lived like an unemployed actor, so I don't buy anything unless I can buy it. I don't buy anything on credit. Right. Um, but we, I, I went. Uh, I bought boy, nine helicopters sound, with cash. Gonna, now you're going to get the insights. So I love it. My wife and I years ago went to a psychic, and I, I don't know how I feel about this stuff. But this guy actually told us some stuff that was so spot on and so specific. And we went, "Crap, this is amazing!" And he very nonchalantly said, "Now, when it comes to money, never you. You don't make the decision." He said, "Because if you and I have the exact same stock." And we both are going to sell it on the same day. I'll sell it three seconds before you and make a profit, and you'll lose your shirt. You just are not good with making decisions about money, so don't do it. So my wife does it all. She do you think he said that maybe and... because women are more likely to pay psychics? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I see where you're going. Interesting. I'm picking up that what the psychic uh, would yeah, know to say such an amazingly thoughtful thing about the future. Yeah, yeah. But it she... worked out very well because my wife does the research and she hires the right people and and. Uh, other than you know, we got we got killed twice. We got killed in nine yeah, eleven, sure. and we got killed in two thousand and eight when it died again. But uh, but we've always made it back. It's been okay. You hung in there. It came back. Yeah, you're yeah. fine. That's yeah. the thing. It's a it's a long game. Yeah. That's what they tell me. If you stick in there, yeah. then you then over time. 
It's yeah, all going to yeah, be fine. Yeah, yeah. They all... don't account for the fact that, you know, I walk very close to traffic every day. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all fine. No problem. I was so delighted to hear that you were not only a fan of Walking Dead, but that you came, that you wanted to come oh, on the show. Geez. When they said, Jason Alexander wants to come on the show, like, really? Like, I don't know. Just... From episode four of that show, I was like a mental patient. I just, I couldn't get enough. It was, uh, yeah, there's something, uh, that the whole... You know, the underlying, th- it's not so underlying, that whole theme of if these were your circumstances, what human would you become? And how would your values shift? And when do you give up? And when do you. It, it's just so intriguing to me watching this group of people and all their dynamics play out this, this Armageddon scenario um, and fight for their survival and fight to remain in some way, shape, or form human um, is just being done so well and what kills me is that the show i mean it's a gigantic hit but within the industry it does not get a lot of love no not at all actually i mean maybe for special effects but i look at you know for like there are emmy award-winning performances absolutely in that show not only only the performers which who are uniformly fantastic some of them are just given some things to do that are extraordinary the directing of the show, the writing of the show, the writing on that show, given what it is about, is as rock solid, as imaginative, as potent as as Breaking Bad was. Uh, you know, the the quality of the writing is extraordinary. And it has to be because it's it's handling so many stories, so many characters. Uh, you know, it, it never gets a writing nod. It never gets a directing. I nod. think it's just that thing of. You know there are two there are two things that don't typically get respect when it comes to award time, which is horror and comedy. Right. And I know American Horror Story has gotten some, but American Horror Story is it's really a soap opera with some some scary. Stuff, it is. It know, is. Yeah. It's more of like an art piece. Yeah, it's weird. It's a it's a it's a Picasso painting. It is. It is. So you know, horror and comedy just never really get the award respect no. because I don't know. I guess they. I guess it's sort of like oh those those are vulgar art forms when you know first of all. Good horror is very difficult to do. Very hard to do. And good comedy is near impossible to do. Yeah. Like it is the good comedy is the hardest thing to do. But it still doesn't, you know, it's not gonna it's no. not not gonna get the no. And I think that's just sort of the you know, you sort of just know, okay, well, that's fine. I'm still going to put on the clown makeup. I'm still going to, you know. Yeah, because we it, comedy has put its little own little on my sperm. You know, uh, um for the most part, uh, you know, the, the rock solid comics guys uh, have uh, huge rewards. You know, they get paid very well, and, and their careers tend to last a little bit longer. But, um, but no, that's not a lot of, of respect for it as an art form. Were you upset or happy that spoiler that uh, that Glenn was not dead? Uh, I was on the fence because it it is it is those losses that make it so profoundly watchable. Yeah. Um, and the loss of Glenn would have been an immense blow, and it would have enriched the possibilities of so many other characters. By the same token, you love Glenn and you love Steve. You, I see. At this point, I feel like I'm protective of the actors. Like, oh, sure. I don't want Steve to lose his job. <laughs> um, so you know, I'm happy to have him there for as long as he's going to be there. But uh, I also thought it was not. Here's actually what I thought. I thought. Um, if this is it, it wasn't. It, they didn't. They didn't shoot it very well. I didn't feel it because it was so quick and so. Well, it was quick and it was a weird angle because yeah. they had to hide the truth. And, yeah, 
and I and I thought, oh, that's bizarre. And it didn't have. Here's the other thing it didn't have. It didn't have, in some sense, the the pullback to Maggie. So you didn't feel that relationship loss. You didn't feel her death in it as well. Right. And I thought, if when if and when Glenn really dies, we're going to reflect it in the eyes of Maggie. And and they tried to do that with the following episode. But Tyler's death was so Noah powerful. Yes, so powerful and and shot the way I think when you know when Shane went down, when Dale went down, when you know when when our when the characters we've connected with go down. It felt different than Glenn's death, so well, when I, it, I was left hanging. Yeah, yeah. when I – because I watch – I mean, I don't watch ahead, so when that episode happened, I I talked to them about it. I talked to Scott about it, and I just said, yeah, it was – I said a similar thing. I was like, well, if, if he really is dead, it was a very not – it was – there was not a lot of fanfare. It was very yeah. – and he said to me, well, but that's how people die. That's how people die in this world. And then after it was all over, he said, listen, you know, because – Immediately before the Glenn episode resolved, before it was over, there was uh, people were already posting oh, like, so, yeah. "This was I can't believe they tricked the." Right. And Scott said, "You know, we we wanted the audience to feel what the people in that world felt. Right. You don't know, you don't know. Like Glenn was out there, Maggie didn't know, the survivors didn't know. They wanted to create that, and I thought, you know, that had such an extra dimension. And so for people to complain about." The writers trying to do something that adds a dimension of uncertainty to everything. Yeah. Like, why? What are you fucking complaining about? Right, I right, mean, right. most people were very happy. I was asking people at my live shows, "Would you be happy if Glenn was not alive?" No, we want Glenn, oh, and course, I was very happy that he didn't die too. So. My fr- I got to tell you, after I did talking to them, I, I was chatting with my my partner Peter Tilden, and I didn't know he was a deadhead. I, I, I didn't know he watched <laughs> the show because we had never talked about it, which is so weird because we talk about everything. And he came up with the mo- with the funniest observation because you know having Kirkman right there, there were so many things I wanted to go. Sure, yeah, but come <laughs> on. And he said, "So you got three hundred zombies coming at you, right? All I want to do is eat the flesh of the living. Six of them get to the guy. Do those six go? You know, I feel much better. Now. <laughs> it doesn't seem to matter whether you good. eat or don't eat. You just keep going They're and going never... and going. Some of them don't even have stomachs anymore. What do they yeah. eat? But they'll eat you. It's not for nourishment. What is that all it's about? It's like a buffet in Vegas. <laughs> I started just... sounding like Jerry. What the hell? What the hell is it kind of? Why do the zombies? Do they feel like? Yeah. Do they pick ethnicity? Sometimes they a... feel like Asian. And at what point do they stop eating? <laughs> they don't. Eh. No, they do. You see zombies walking around that were clearly half eaten. <laughs> Those people were dead. They started being eaten, and at some point, the zombies went, "Oh, oh, you know what? This guy's really dead mm. now. <laughs> I can't." Maybe they're like, off. "We could use him amongst <laughs> us." Yeah, yeah. I'm watching be. my oh, zombie figure. Wild. Yeah. No one, no one ever goes. Why? Why the flesh of the living? Why? Well, because the, the one of the, the there are two things that you have to accept about the show. Number one. Everyone has this virus, and right. you're never going to find out what it is. Right. And number two, that um, the characters before this event did not know what zombies were. Because right. They don't use the word. They right. don't. They can't. They're. They're not right. using the. Oh well, the Night of the Living Dead. Like they're not. Yeah, no, there's no reference. There's though. no reference right. point for them. So those are the two main things. And mm-hmm. if you're okay with that, then it's great. And then, which by the way, still the greatest line ever written. Is in Night of the Living Dead, where they're interviewing the sheriff. <laughs> you know the line I'm talking about? Yeah, good. 
Uh, and the reporter goes, now, Sheriff, if I were surrounded by eight or nine of these things, would I, would I have a chance? And, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. You just, you know, you hit them in the head. You just hit them in the head with something. They're not terribly strong. You know, they're, they're dead. They're all fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> He's already casual about it. Nah, it's not. This is not a big deal. <laughs> Are you watching uh, Ash vs. Evil Dead? Have you watched Ash vs. Evil Dead? No, no. It's really fun. Is it? Yeah. Where is that? It's on stars. stars. They brought back Evil uh, Dead with Bruce Campbell. Okay, and they, it's it's funny. Yeah, it's, I have children. I'll get there. It's really funny. You'll get yeah. there's too much. I just polished off the first season of Daredevil because of that. Oh, so no great! Idea. Jessica oh, Jones is great man. too. If you like Daredevil, you'll kids, love Jessica my Jones. My kids did not quite groove on the Jessica. They didn't. Jones thing. No, I grooved on it. Yeah, right, I, give it I loved it. There was more because you know Daredevil's great, but it's really just like a crime show, right? I mean, he has abilities, but yeah. it's not. There's not so much. And Jessica Jones is really interesting because they. They it there's this trend where it seems to be with these Netflix comic book these Netflix Marvel shows where they're the they're trying to bring in more true crime realism mm-hmm. and like so the powers are a little whereas like a network show that would be front and right. center Supergirl exactly <laughs> this is sort of like they which I am watching it you're like Supergirl yeah <laughs> they have powers but it's not. You know, they it's right, not as right. front and center yeah, as everything yeah, yeah, else. Yeah, it's just yeah, sort yeah. of an oh by the way. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I really I really dug Jessica. Is Luke Jones. Cage in it? Luke Cage is in it. Awesome. Wow. Yep. Who's playing Luke Cage? Uh, I don't know the actor's name, but he's he's quick. He's fantastic. <laughs> Whoever the guy is who's playing Luke Cage is fantastic. Really? He's really good. Because they're doing now, a Luke Cage standalone series. I'm gonna oh, ask you an inopportune question because mm. I know you kinda work for the camera. Mm. You got any feeling about Into the Badland? Uh no, I don't have a feeling about it cuz I haven't watched Enough any of it. it. Uh-huh. I haven't watched any of it yet because when I when, when I'm in Walking Dead mode, yeah. I'm basically just in Walking Cold. Dead mode. Yeah. So I'm not Mike sure about Cold it. Yet. I can't. Coulter? Mike Coulter. Coulter. Mike Coulter, Mike, you are you're doing a great Cage? job. I look forward you to watching You are fan-fucking-tastic uh, as Luke Cage. I wasn't going to watch on, Jessica uh, Jones, but now Luke Cage. You know is everyone's so great well. on Jessica Jones and da- and also yeah, they are doing Luke Cage Sandler series. Yeah. Um, great. Um, uh, Kristen Ritter's great, and Rachel Taylor is great, and David Tennant is... Oh, David, David Tennant is yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. He is just phenomenal. So, yeah, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, as we're sort of winding down here, when you, you've gotten to do a lot of really neat, fun stuff. Is yeah. there a thing that's, you know, whether it's SNL or maybe it's Seinfeld or maybe it's not or maybe it's something that no one ever saw like what was your favorite thing do you have a favorite thing that you go oh. a favorite thing do you have kind of a favorite thing even if it's a concept of a thing or just or a, a mcdlt commercial or a mcdlt yeah. commercial that anything. you might have done you mean of the stuff that i've done of anything yeah. that you've done yeah um there's one that i think well it's 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 really hard to to have anything top seinfeld only because it it, it lasted so long um it's it has this enormous fascination for people still which i can't account for and it was a complete joy from top to bottom even the days you know in the negotiations that were rough the work the the being with the gang being on the stage and and making the shows was just a laugh fest a love fest uh, nothing better and you know a, a series is an arranged marriage you don't know what you're getting you put four people together and you go they may not get along i've been on sets where there's a little bit of rancor and uh we were just extraordinarily lucky. So it's hard to top that. But of all the stuff that I've done, the one that I was scared by and thought this could really prove how not worthy I am was a a small indie movie of a uh, a Broadway play called Love, Valor, Compassion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this this movie. And it was um, 
So it's a it's a small movie about uh, the lives of seven gay men who are friends and, and and some of them have relationships over the course of a couple of summers and it was during the height of the AIDS epidemic and it was a the play won the Pulitzer and it won all kinds of awards and um, they made the movie with the original cast the theater cast minus Nathan Lane Nathan had done the Birdcage and for whatever reason he decided he couldn't followed up with love valor compassion and so i got invited to that party and it was scary on a number of <laughs> levels one was these other actors had lived with it not you know eight shows a week for well over a year i mean they knew this piece in a way i just was never going to catch up with and it was also um uh a character so far removed from me a, a flamboyant gay man dying of aids and I thought this is going to be so easy to be a caricature or, you know, a cartoon and I'm going to offend the gay community and, you know, it's a piece that's so important to that community. Um, and the whole thing turned out to be uh, just a joyous thing to work on and the response that I got from the gay community for doing the film was uh, beyond imagining. And, and I look at that film and I go, that's pretty good. That, you know, I hadn't done a dramatic piece of work for a while when I did that film. And I went, okay, those, those muscles are still in there. That's, that's pretty good. Does it make you miss that? Because when you hear doing like eight shows a week for eight years, mm-hmm. and when it's year seven and you're doing the same show that you've done eight... Well, I've never done eight, yeah, eight a week for eight years. I mean, but I've done eight a week. The longest I've ever done eight a week was 14 months. And uh, How do you keep it fresh month 11? It's extremely hard. Honestly, it's extremely hard at that, for me at that point. I know people that do shows for years and years and years, and they, they're totally happy to be doing it. <laughs> I'm good for about six months. And after that, um, unless something unusual happens, like if new cast members come in and you go, oh, I've got to adjust, um, that, that can freshen it up for a while. But if you're, when you sign a Broadway show deal, you're basically signing for a year. So that's eight a week for a year. And what people don't realize who don't do it, because you think, oh, come on, he's working two hours a night. What's the big deal? No big deal. Um, that's true. But your entire life has to gear for those two hours. So you can't expend mm-hmm. energy. You can't use your voice. If it's a musical, you really can't use your voice. Um, and you have to explode at that 8 o'clock hour. So you turn your life upside down. And I, I was back on Broadway this summer doing Larry David's play. Same thing. I, you know, I, Friends would call and go, hey, let's go out after the show. I go, can't. Can't do it. <laughs> I won't. I won't have anything for tomorrow. Um, but after about six months, the material—it's hard to be feeling and hearing and seeing the material with a fresh eye that night. You kind of go, "Here's the laugh. Here's that moment. Here's this thing. Here's that. Oh, they're going to do this now." And it does. It gets into a little bit of a rut. There is a a freshness that happens with the audience every night. And it sustains we theater actors um, <laughs> to to at least give it our best attempt because you can feel the fresh, especially on Broadway, where you know people come to New York to go to Broadway. It is their just it's the highlight of what they're going to do in New York, and they bring that energy into the theater, and it really is a turn on, and you get excited for them, and you want to deliver for them, so um, they can gear you up. But by the same token, there is such a thing as a dead house. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that is also uh, an arranged marriage. Yeah, you know what? The, there's a lot of arranged marriages with a cast. And then the audience is its own arranged marriage, and then those two entities ha- are an arranged marriage. Yeah. And there are some there are some audiences where you you know 
I've <laughs> I've heard comics say like, if you guys ever get a chance to be an audience together again, don't. Yeah, you right. know, it's like some people just have weird energy together. You bet. And you know, there was an. <laughs> And sometimes it's the performer fault, but sometimes it is well, also the audience. I, fault. I always say the audience is never wrong, and right. usually if the audience is dead, it's something funkadoo is happening on the stage. But um, by the same token, I was in a show—the one that I won the Tony for was a show called Jerome Robbins Broadway—and it's it couldn't be a bad night because it's really just a dance show. It's some of the greatest <laughs> theater dances ever done by the best dancers on Broadway at that time. Uh, and I was not one of them. I was like the host narrator of that show. So when, I was just showcasing these 60 extraordinary people. West Side Story. You know, I, I mean, it was just great. And we had an audience just they, – they couldn't care less. I, I, I was like, D -d was this a prison sentence? Why would you leave your houses? Is this community service? What's going on? And I actually, after one extraordinary number, I turned to the – it was a matinee. I turned to the audience as the narrator and went, okay – why don't you look in your playbill? What do, what do you want to see? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just do those. Did uh, that you know, confound them or did it they? Did, and, and I was uh, harshly rebuked. For doing <laughs> <that>. <laughs> well, see, that's the problem. That's what when you have when you have a little bit of the comedian gene. Yeah, you can't it's hard to it. not respond, yeah. especially when you're talking right to them. It's hard to not. And I'm not going to make you tell the whole story again. But to anyone who should watch Misery Loves Comedy, which is uh, Kevin Pollock's oh, yeah, yeah. movie, where you tell a whole story about that. I think you. I think it was that, that story. No, 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 no. You tell oh. a different story about the comedy gene going wrong for you because you oh, came at out the at the SAG Awards. Where you oh, made it. Oh, my yeah. God. Oh. <laughs> I don't want to make you oh. read that again. <laughs> that was so not good. Yeah. I have never forgotten that. I mean, that must be what it feels like. Too. It's two things I hadn't really known. One was, you know, really bombing with something. But also public humiliation is right. just a bad thing. <laughs> Good thing for the Jews. We don't like it. Uh, <laughs> it's just Jew. You hear the horn. He's going Jew. No, uh, you no. know. It, yeah, that was rough. That was rough. And and with the best of intention, but it just didn't. <laughs> yeah, comedy. Comedy is always with the best of intentions, but when there is a swing and a miss, you're like, oh, oh no, yeah. that's not. No, no, don't stop running. Sit down. I didn't mean yeah, that. Yeah, I do a line. I, I still do it in my stand-up because I talk about um, how goofy I think tattoos are, and I talk about it being a, f a relatively new phenomenon, tattoos. I go, 50 years ago, nobody had a tattoo. If you had a tattoo 50 years ago, you were either a merchant marine or a Holocaust survivor. Right. And that, with the wrong crowd, go, ooh. And I go, right. really? Too soon? <laughs> what are we, you know? <laughs> it's just a fact. <laughs> they tattooed the people with Holocaust. You know, it was... A I'm one of you. What are you? <laughs> I can do that, Joe. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that My real name is Greenspan. Don't be fooled by this Goyesh name. What if you're like, no, it's okay. I can do that joke. I'm anti-Semitic. What? <laughs> there's, a, there's the Brian Cranston episode. There's the Brian yeah. Cranston. Yeah, there's an episode of uh, Curb where Larry gets Jeff to hire this chef. Because he has all these numbers on his arm, and he thinks he's a Holocaust survivor. So he's like, "Hire this guy as the survivor," uh -huh. and then like, and find out that he's like rubbing it off with this, it was this lottery numbers that he wrote <laughs> down on his arm. <laughs> well, Jason Alexander, you've been amazing for the past hour, and God we, bless you, Christopher. We, uh, uh, I believe, we're promoting Grinder for you. Is this correct? Well, the two episodes that I've done have aired. They tell me I'm coming back, but I, I don't understand how. Uh, but I, but okay. <laughs> we cannot wait to there's see you. Will, there's a way. <laughs> they tell me that because uh, you know I'm the director creator of the show that Rob used to be on, right? Which he's no longer on. 
So why am I still? You know, there's up? always I, you know, a television way to weave. You know, when you've got magic like this, <laughs> you find a way to do a magic show. Can't be contained. <laughs> magic just happens, you guys. Just uh, but happens. where will I be? What, uh, what am I doing? Uh, I, uh, you look for me at your local. Uh, I don't do comedy clubs, but I do big theaters. The theaters, yeah, the tour. That's fun. That's really great. Symphonies I'm so glad you're doing and, that. Yeah, it's all gonna be great. And uh, also, uh, Jason Alexander returning to television with Alf is another thing that we yeah. established. Uh, hey, plug my kid. Tell people to, to check out on YouTube. Go to Idiot Chimney. Idiot Chimney. Go to any, I, Idiot Chimney. My and see son, Gabe's. Gabe Greenspan, yep. kept, kept his real name. I nice. don't know why. Not a good choice. I, don't think, <laughs> I kept saying to him, not a good choice. Uh, yeah, but he and his partner are doing some very funny sketch stuff. On uh, Where did Alexander come from? Uh, my father's first name. Oh, oh nice. Yeah. Alexander yeah. Greenspan. But I was going to be Jason Scott, because my real name is Jay. Jay, not Jason, Scott Greenspan. Uh huh. And I always thought, Jason Scott, Jason Scott, Jason Scott. And I went to, I had to join my first union, and they said, Would you like a stage time? I said, Jason Scott, please. And I was 13 or 14, and they went, Nope. <laughs> uh, what do you mean, no? And so we got 10 of them on every possible uh, spelling. I tried spelling Jason, J-I-A, J-A-I-S-I-N, Jason, <laughs> like raisin. They went, no, we got it. Somebody took it. I went, oh, fuck. Hello, God. Jason Scott the 10th so, here. Uh, yeah, just sitting there going, oh, oh, my dad's name is Alexander, Jason Alexander. And they went, yeah, sure. And you didn't okay. want Greenspan? Why? Um, only, I think it was just an age thing. I, I was, uh, you know, a fat, shy kid. I was... I, I got picked on every day, yeah. and green span was just green fill in the blank. Green yeah, fuck, yeah, green yeah, shit. Yeah. And I just went, I, I, gotta, I don't want it on the marquee. They're going to make fun of it. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's just like, that, that no matter, you know, most of your life is is basically just making up for stuff that happened between the ages of 12 and Absolutely. 17. But what a world we live in where, you know, Jesse Eisenberg, Jesse Eisenberg. You know, it's, yeah. it's fantastic. If I, if I had come into a real career later, yeah. I, I probably would have kept my name. So Gabe Greenspan, Idiot Chimney, yeah. Jason Alexander. It's, do you have a, is there, where are your dates listed, your live dates? Nowhere. Okay. No. I, mean, um, I don't like really having attendance. Sure. <laughs> Uh, we'll talk after we record, but I think you're doing something wrong. Uh, okay. <laughs> so it's uh, it, so if you just show up to a theater, Jason Alexander might, might be, be there, there doing stand-up. <laughs> I, might be, I might be there. Check yeah. your local But you marquee. don't know. Yeah. But you don't know. No, you have no idea. But he is I, Jason Alexander, on Twitter. Uh, and I do might... post it there. You do post it there. Right, okay, yeah, excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, being here, Jason Alexander. Thank you. Good luck with your life and career. You're a fine young man. Oh, I, I think appreciate highly that. of you. I am so honored. Thank you so much. I feel weird now, and I, my fa- I'm smiling and I'm blushing at the same time. Uh, you can't make eye contact. It's very funny. Uh, I can't. <laughs> Is that true? You can't take a compliment? I take it okay. Yeah. Oh, my okay. God. You've I'm okay. folded in on yourself. No, <laughs> I'm fine. It's good. It's good. I mean, thank you. My I thank you for... cannot wait for your wedding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, next year? Oh, hey. oh, oh yeah. like, Shut up. Sit down. Yeah. <laughs> I know. My, you know, my fiance is so wonderful. And every day she'll, you know, we wake up and she's like, I just, I, I love waking up to you every morning. And I'm just like, shut up. You know, and she's <laughs> like, no, I will never shut up. Like, I can't even. Even for my own fiance, I'm like, stop, please. What is that about? Because there's something to that. You know, it is. It's probably a bit of self-loathing, and it's probably a bit of I don't deserve that, and it's probably you know I too was mercilessly picked on in yeah. grade school, and so I think there's always just a, and and then I think there's also some of it is probably like, oh, if I allow that, then I'm an asshole. Oh, you know what? Fuck it, Catholic guilt. That's what it is. Oh yeah, Catholic guilt. See, 
the only thing to write. My mother did a thing to me when I was in high school because I really was the kid that was not getting any love. And then I started acting and and kids responded to me very nicely. And I had done a show in high school and my mother was backstage with me for whatever reason. And, you know, the umpteenth person went, hey, you were great. And instead of going, thank you, really thank you, I just went, I know. (laughs) And my mother heard that and she pulled me over to the side and she said, if I ever hear you respond like that to somebody complimenting you again, you will never be on a stage again. Oh, my gosh. And it's so got to me that to this day, you know, when anybody comes up to me and they say, oh, I really like your work, all I can do is just kind of – I have the same thing. I kind of go, oh, thank you. That's thank you. Sweet. That's thank very you. nice. Yeah. No, thank- I don't know how to quite – Yeah, because no, I'm always worried anything no. other than, you know – deepest humility you're welcome to be an asshole (laughs) and i had the most supportive parents in the world and i still feel like i still just feel like oh yeah you know i mean yeah which is kind of funny as a comic where you think there are shades of narcissism when it's not so much narcissism but definitely like you're egocentric as a comic because you're expressing your point of view is so important that you have to get on stage in front of strangers and seek validation but uh yeah it's i i get all i get all weird and blushy about it and it and then at a certain point then you look like more of an asshole because they're like oh he's faking the but it isn't i do feel like i can feel my no matter what you do we're gonna judge yeah exactly yeah just live your life i'm a piece of shit oh (laughs) what i'll just leave look at this guy's gotta be so low oh what am i supposed to be now (laughs) yeah that's how people are gonna react oh he has to be the big he claimed the piece of shit territory. So. I'm a pile of shit. Oh, a whole pile, huh? <laughs> Boy, this guy. That's like Louis C.K. suck a bag of dicks. A, a bag. bag of dicks. A whole bag of yeah, dicks. Right. A whole bag of dicks. Uh, well, it's good to see you, man. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being here. And uh, we'll enjoy your burrito, everyone. That was almost Alf-like. Alf. The dark Alf comedy is and coming right, back. Scout has just laid down. Yeah, yeah. The dog. Uh, Katie's dog doesn't ever. Just If I could lick my balls, maybe I, too. All day long. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito.